Okay, welcome to another installment in our church history series. And today we are going to go through more material regarding the Enlightenment. And this will be our last, uh, uh, last time we touch on the Enlightenment. There is so much material here, we cannot possibly uh, you know, go through all of it. I'm just really trying to hit the highlights of the highlights. So the picture you see um, on the screen is uh, a bunch of 18th century dudes wearing powdered wigs, uh, being all 18th century-like. You know, you can imagine a harpsichord playing in the background. And this uh, painting depicts um, the Italian philosopher and political thinker Cesare Beccaria. Beccaria, we don't... Uh, you know, we could, I could do a whole segment on him. He had some very radical ideas for his day. He was especially interested in prison reform and reform of the criminal justice system as it was in many European countries, which was often harsh. And he advocated for much more humane treatment of prisoners. The, uh, he wanted to do away with torture and you know all kinds of barbaric practices that uh, he felt were just wrong. Um, all right, so we'll begin here, and we'll recall that social, political, and religious changes that occurred during the 16 and 1700s affected the major institutions within European nations. The Protestant Reformation, in its various forms, challenged the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church, and the age of exploration beginning in the late 1400s connected the old world with the new world and brought change to both. The emergence of a middle class in European nations began to change ideas about economics and politics. Philosophers and scientists of the period widely circulated their ideas through meetings at scientific academies, Masonic lodges, literary salons, salons, rather, uh, coffee houses, and in printed books, journals, and pamphlets. The ideas of the Enlightenment undermined the authority of the monarchy uh, throughout the different countries of Europe and the Roman Catholic Church and paved the way for the political revolutions of the 18th and 19th centuries. A variety of 19th century movements, including liberalism, communism, and neoclassicism, trace their intellectual heritage to the Enlightenment. <laughs> In the Middle Ages, the university was the major social institution through which the Catholic Church educated men from the aristocracy and trained them to rule. The university, along with the church, helped solidify the fusion of church and state. Enlightenment thinkers breaking away from the church began to create different institutions that supported their work in science and philosophy. So again, remember, the scientific revolution is occurring. Uh, human beings, uh, mostly, again, men in these European nations, are focusing on research in uh, physical phenomena, in physics, chemistry, in medicine, biology, and other uh, disciplines, scientific disciplines. The ancient Greek philosophers had their schools or academies of philosophy, 
and Enlightenment thinkers created different types of academies to support their work. In the 17th century, the tradition of literary philosophical academies as circles of friends gathering around learned patrons was continued in Italy and France. Academies of the arts were established throughout Europe, supported by kings and wealthy aristocrats to ensure that painting, sculpture, musical, and theatrical compositions were produced. Throughout the Middle Ages, the arts had been focused on and supported by the church. Subjects for artistic compositions shifted from religious figures and subjects to humanistic concerns. And so this is a painting by uh, what a lot of people would consider a pretty famous uh, painter from the Middle Ages, uh, Giotto de Bondone, if I'm pronouncing that right. And this is his Madonna enthroned, and this is a detail from this painting, and he painted this in approximately 1310. So again, in the Middle Ages, the focus is on religious subjects, and primarily that's where the resources are going in the arts to glorify and depict scenes from the Bible, from church history, and so forth. And much of the art stays within the church. Of course, you know, the great cathedrals that were built uh, in the Middle Ages uh, encompass great works of art. Okay. A little over 400 years later, we have a very different famous painting, again depicting a woman, but this is a very different kind of woman. She's a French aristocrat. She is sitting in a swing, and the picture's a little bit dark, and you probably can't see it very well, but she's flirting with a young man who's below in the lower left-hand corner of the picture uh, in the bushes, and someone behind her has ropes attached to the swing to pull her back and forth. And there she is in all her Baroque, well, really, this, is, this painting is in the style called Rococo, in all of her elaborate aristocratic beauty, flirting with this young aristocratic man, hiding in the bushes, and she's dressed, her, her clothing is supposed to depict that of a shepherdess. So uh, it was popular for French aristocrats during this time period. They had a lot of money and time on their hands. And so they would, um, you know, they were bored. So they would dress up and, and pretend they were peasants or shepherds and shepherdesses. And they would have these, you know, beautiful little uh, cottages built that were nothing like the cottages of the real shepherds. And they would play at being you know, what they thought of was, you know, a pastoral sort of um, thing that they, they like to do. And, you know, a lot of this is embodied in Marie Antoinette, uh, the wife of the King of France, and her famous line when she was told that the peasants were starving and had no bread, let them eat cake. So this is a painting that, again, you, it's, I wish it was a little brighter, but uh, it very much depicts this this whole sense of wealth and privilege, and we are so privileged and we have so much time and so much money, we can play at being peasants. Uh, a very different kind of society. There's not the emphasis on religion that there was in the Middle Ages. 
linguistic academies were created to support natural literature, national literature and ensure literary and linguistic standards for European languages. In the Middle Ages, Latin was the universal language of the church and the nobility. If you were educated, you spoke and worked in Latin. In the Enlightenment, institutions such as the Académie Française in France established standards for the French language. And again, remember, as we talked about the religious movements in England that were pushing for having the scriptures available in the language of the common people. So in England, they were printing Bibles in English. In France, they were trying to print Bibles in French. Uh, Martin Luther in Germany was pushing forward with the German Bible uh, so that the common people could speak uh, or rather uh, read the scriptures in their own languages. But this is also giving an impetus to the idea of our languages are going to supplant Latin and also Greek and Hebrew. And so learned men can now pursue their, the discipline they choose in their own language. So in other words, this idea of Latin and also Greek and Hebrew being universal language languages used by educated people. This is beginning to kind of fade into the background. The Academy Francaise was founded in 1635 and it is still in existence today. And this is the body that has the duty of acting as an official authority on the French language. It is tasked with publishing the official dictionary of the French language. And so today in France, if you want to speak correct French, uh, if you want to learn that language, uh, you need to look at the publications of the Académie Française. And this academy is actually now supported by the government of France. And the idea is the government is going to oversee the, the language that is spoken within this nation. So the idea of, you know, a universal language being important for educated people, again, this is starting to go away. And now people are beginning to say our vernacular languages are really what's important. Academies of the sciences were formed in many European nations. Academic societies began as group of, groups of academics who worked together or presented their work to each other. These informal groups later became organized and in many cases state approved and state supported. During the 18th century, many European kings followed and founded their own Academy of Sciences. And there you have a list of some, and this is just a small part, the list is actually very, very long of all these scientific academies that sprung up in various European nations. You notice I have there uh, that in 1724, the Russian Academy of Sciences was founded. Russia was a fairly backward nation at this time, but was looking towards the West, towards Britain, France, Germany, and other uh, European nations and copying their examples. Um, we haven't really talked really at all about Russia. Maybe we can do a unit on that as well. Um, and the Scandinavian uh, countries also were looking to Germany, France, and Great Britain um, and copying their examples. So Sweden, Denmark, Norway, they were predominantly Lutheran 
with some Roman Catholic influence, but they copied what they saw taking place on the continent. And here's a painting, and again, this one's pretty dark, unfortunately, but this, this was painted by a French painter in 1675, Henri Testelin, and this is uh, Colbert, uh, a famous French scientist named Colbert, presenting the members of the Royal Academy of Sciences to Louis XIV in 1667. So these scientists have come together, formed this academy, and they come to the king and say, please be our patron, please provide funding for us to continue our scientific studies. Now, even today, this is somewhat unusual for us. When we think of scientific research, we think of this occurring mainly in universities. And the universities were still in existence, of course, and scientists uh, were continuing to work and teach in universities. But the emergence of the academies was truly a different phenomenon. And it was, they were largely state-supported. The kings saw these academies as adding to the prestige of their nations. You know, the French really wanted to be pioneers in the sciences. And the king was very much, uh, you know, in favor of this academy and supporting it. While intellectual life and the arts were flourishing in secular society, the prestige and importance of the Roman Catholic Church was diminishing in these areas. Humanistic ideas, rationalism, and free thinking were championed in many circles, but this left room for less rational and in some cases occult religious ideas and practices. Freemasonry or masonry refers to fraternal organizations that trace their origins to the local guilds of stonemasons that from the end of the 13th century regulated the qualifications of stonemasons and their interaction with authorities and clients. You know, so in the Middle Ages, there are guilds. There are association of different tradespeople and different uh, artisans. So you have the guild of, of gold workers. You have the guild of silver workers. You have different guilds. And, and these were really kind of a precursor to the unions that we have today. Okay, so you have groups of people who are uh, engaged in a particular craft or activity that form their associations. And those associations uh, make rules about who can be part of the guild and how you become a part of the guild, the apprenticeship system. And again, our labor unions today reflect that same type of organization. Uh, so these uh, stonemasonry guilds, what do they do now that the great cathedrals have been built? and there aren't any, really any more uh, being built. And some of the great buildings of the Middle Ages, they're just not producing those in this time period. So Freemasonry transitioned from being associated with stonemasons and cathedral builders and their guilds. With the decline of cathedral buildings, some lodges of operative or working masons began to accept honorary members to bolster their declining membership. From a few of these lodges developed modern symbolic or speculative Freemasonry, which particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries adopted the rites and trappings of ancient religious orders and of chivalric brotherhoods. Uh, you know, the idea of the Knights Templar, that didn't go away. 
um, along with uh, the Freemasons, these orders uh, or groups, these, I guess you could call them clubs, uh, transitioned into being something different. Uh, and as we'll see, uh, became involved with some occult stuff. So Freemasonry spread widely throughout Europe, Great Britain, and the Americas in the 1700s. And it came to mean the teachings and practices of the secret, fraternal, men-only, order of free and accepted Masons, the largest worldwide secret society. Freemasonry has, from its beginnings, encountered considerable opposition from organized religion, especially from the Roman Catholic Church and from various national governments. Freemasonry is not a Christian institution, though it has often been mistaken for such. Freemasonry contains many of the elements of a religion. Its teachings include morality, charity, and obedience to the law of the land. In most traditions, the applicant for admission is required to be an adult male, white only, and all applicants must also believe in the existence of a supreme being and in the immortality of the soul. In practice, some lodges have been charged with prejudice against Jews, Catholics, and non-whites. Freemasonry in Latin countries has attracted those who question religious dogma or who oppose the clergy. In the UK, the Commonwealth, and countries with a British heritage, the membership is drawn largely from among white Protestants. Another occult religious movement is Rosicrucianism. It had its origination in the 17th century and has German and Lutheran roots. It claims to be a worldwide brotherhood that possesses esoteric wisdom handed down from ancient times. The name derives from the order's symbol, a rose on a cross, or a cross, sometimes it's a cross and a rose, which is similar to the family coat of arms of Martin Luther, and it is also somewhat similar to what's called the Lutheran Rose. And I'll have a picture for you here in a moment. Rosicrucian teachings are a combination of occultism and other religious beliefs and practices, including Hermeticism, which is an Egyptian religion, Jewish mysticism, and Christian Gnosticism. The origins and teachings of the Rosicrucians are described in three anonymously published books that have been attributed to Johann Valentin André, a Lutheran theologian and teacher who wrote the utopian treatise Christianopolis in 1619. In other works, André recounted the, the travels of Christian Rosencruz, the supposed founder of the group, who is now generally regarded as a fictional character rather than a real person. So essentially, this guy, Andre, invented this religion. Um, and he wrote these books in which this figure, Rosencruz, who was supposedly born in 1378, lived for 106 years. And supposedly, he discovered the esoteric secrets that form the basis of Rosicrucianism in North Africa and the Middle East. In the early 17th century, Rosicrucian manifestos caused excitement throughout Europe by declaring the existence of a secret brotherhood of 
Alchemists, remember alchemy, the idea of turning base metals into gold or silver or some, some other precious substance. And sages, wise men who were preparing to transform the arts and sciences and religious and political and intellectual landscapes of Europe. During a period when wars of politics and religion ravaged Europe, the hope that Rosicrucianism inspired was attractive to many. The works were reissued several times, followed by numerous pamphlets, favorable or otherwise, and between 1614 and 1620, about 400 manuscripts and books were published, which discussed the Rosicrucian documents. Central to Rosicrucianism is the symbol of the Rose Cross, or the Rosy Cross. It is based not on the cross of Christ, but on the Egyptian symbol for life, the Ankh, with a rose in the middle. According to a prominent Rosicrucian, the rose was sacred to Aurora, goddess of the dawn and the sun. It is a symbol of dawn, the resurrection of light and the renewal of life, and therefore of the dawn of the first day or the resurrection. The cross and the rose together are a hieroglyph to be read as the dawn of eternal life, which all nations has, have hoped for by the advent of a redeemer. So, you know, it's pretty clear, uh, you know, I really wouldn't recommend researching Rosicrucianism too much. <laughs> uh, it's got some pretty bizarre beliefs, but I mean, you can. And you will see there's, there's a lot of elements of Christianity woven in with the occult stuff, but they always point away from Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross. So here you can see Luther's rose. Okay, so this is a symbol that Lutherans have used. And if you go into some Lutheran churches uh, that have stained glass windows, sometimes um, the, uh, Luther's rose is pictured in the stained glass. Here's the Egyptian Ankh or key of life. And then here is the Rosicrucian symbol or the rosy cross. So the, the cross is inside the rose. Sometimes they depict it as the, the cross is big and the rose is in the center of the cross. But often you will see the letters RC. Now, I stumbled upon this cult a few years ago. You know, I read a lot of stuff on the internet and do research on different topics. And I looked at this and I, I was like, what is this? And I saw the letters RC and I thought, are Rosicrucians actually like a, a society within the Roman Catholic Church? The letters R and C suggested to me Roman Catholic. I was wrong. It doesn't have anything to do with Catholicism. It is not a society like the Jesuits, for example, within the Roman Catholic Church. Okay, now we're going to turn to deism, and we will be talking also about a very famous Enlightenment thinker, John Locke, whose ideas had a profound influence, not just in Europe, but in uh, you know, the, the colonies that were settled in, uh, by Great Britain in uh, the New World, in North America. Um, and his ideas had a huge impact on the founders of the United States. So deism is the philosophical position and rationalistic theology that rejects revelation as a source of divine knowledge and asserts that empirical reason 
and observation of the natural world are exclusively logical, reliable, and sufficient to determine the existence of a supreme being as the creator of the universe. Deism is also defined as the belief in the existence of God solely based on rational thought without any reliance on revealed religions or religious authority. Deism emphasizes the concept of natural theology, in other words, that God's existence is revealed through nature. More a philosophy or a set of philosophical presuppositions than a religion, deism is subject to different formulations. The term deist with its current meaning first appears in English in Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy, published in 1621. Now, you know, if you can think about other religious developments during this period, in 1620, the Puritans who had left England, the separatists had left England, gone to Holland, and then gotten on a bunch of small leaky wooden boats to travel across the Atlantic and ended up settling uh, the uh, Plymouth colony. So, you know, these ideas of deism are circulating along with, you know, what the Puritans and separatists are doing in Great Britain, very different mindsets. The first major statement of deism in English is Lord Herbert of Cherbury's book, De Veritate, published in 1624. Lord Herbert, like his contemporary Rene Descartes, Remember, I think, therefore I am, and I start from myself as the source of knowledge. He, Lord Herbert was also searching for what would be the appropriate foundation of knowledge. Unlike his Puritan contemporaries, he did not start with the Bible as the source or foundation of knowledge. So it's taking a very humanistic approach to how do we, how do we know anything about the world, about ourselves, about God, everything. Herbert distinguished truths obtained through experience and reasoning about experience from innate truths and from revealed truths. Innate truths are imprinted on our minds. This is what Herbert thought. And the evidence that they are so imprinted is that they are universally accepted. Herbert's term for universally accepted truths was notitiae communis, common notions. When it came to religion, Herbert believed that there were five common notions. There is one supreme God. He ought to be worshiped. Virtue and piety are the chief parts of divine worship. We ought to be sorry for our sins and repent of them. Divine goodness dispenses rewards and punishments both in this life and after it. Now, this is a very different formulation um, than the Puritans would come up with. Um, and it doesn't talk really about salvation per se. It does refer to the fact that, you know, we have sins and we should be sorry for them and repent of them. But there is nothing in here about salvation from sins. So Herbert was an early deist and did not have many followers. Later, the appearance of John Locke's essay concerning human understanding, published in 1690, marks an important turning point and a new phase in the history of English deism. 
Lord Herbert's epistemology, or theory of knowledge, was based on the idea of common notions, in effect, these innate ideas which he thought every human being possessed. Locke's famous attack on innate ideas in the essay effectively destroyed that foundation. John Locke, born in 1632, died 1704, was an English philosopher and uh, physician, and he is widely regarded as one of the most influential of Enlightenment thinkers and commonly known as the father of liberalism. One of the first of the British empiricists, he followed the tradition of Sir Francis Bacon in advocating for the scientific method. His work greatly affected the development of epistemology, or the philosophy of knowledge. In other, and this is a branch of philosophy that, that tries to figure out how do we know that what we know is true. He was also, um, he did a lot of work in political philosophy. His writings influenced Voltaire uh, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who were French Enlightenment thinkers that, you know, we're really not going to get to, but uh, very important. Many Scottish Enlightenment thinkers uh, were influenced by Locke, and many 18th century American leaders were influenced by Locke's ideas. Uh, uh, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and others. His, con his contributions to classical republicanism and liberal theory are reflected in the U.S. Declaration of Independence. Internationally, Locke's political and legal principles continue to have a profound influence on the theory and practice of limited representative government and the protection of basic rights and freedoms under the rule of law. Locke was the first to define the self through a continuity of consciousness. He did work uh, similar to Descartes and other thinkers who were concerned with the mind-body problem or mind versus brain problem. You know, my brain is right here, but where is my mind? Um, you know, so philosophers and scientists were continuing to grapple with this, um, you know, this difficulty of explaining what is mind and how, what is it, where is it located, you know, how is it related to the physical human body. He postulated that at birth the mind was a blank slate or tabula rasa. And this is a very popular idea which is, um, you know, you walk up to people on the, on the street and some people will tell you even to this day, I believe that when human beings are born, their minds are a blank slate. And whatever is written on them is determined by the environment that they are raised in. The, in other words, people are born without any preconceived ideas. Contrary to Cartesian philosophy based on pre-existing concepts, he maintained that we are born without innate ideas. He believed that knowledge is determined only by experience derived from sense perception or empiricism. So in other words, the only things that we know are what we experience. Born to Puritan parents, he was educated at Oxford. Locke studied medicine and became a physician. In 1666, he met Anthony Ashley Cooper, Lord Ashley, who had come to Oxford seeking treatment for a liver infection. 
Locke's medical knowledge was put to the test when Ashley's liver infection caused by a cyst became life-threatening. Locke assembled a team of physicians who persuaded Ashley to undergo surgery, and at that time to undergo surgery was, you know, incredibly dangerous, uh, but Locke thought that he could remove the cyst along with his team of surgeons, and Ashley survived and he prospered and credited Locke with saving his life. Locke became involved in politics when Ashley became Lord Chancellor in 1672. So Locke kind of rode on the coattails of Lord Ashley as Lord Ashley rose in importance in England and he became influential in political circles. And during this time, Locke wrote two treatises of government. The work is an argument against absolute monarchy and for individual consent as the basis of political legitimacy. In other words, a government is not legitimate unless it has the consent of the governed. Now, think back American history, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. These ideas found their way into the, the thinkers, uh, you know, the people who founded essentially the political foundations of the United States. Although Locke was associated with the influential Whigs, a political party in England that was essentially conservative, his ideas about natural rights and government were quite revolutionary for that period in English history. Um, there were periods where Locke was under per some persecution for his uh, radical ideas, and like a lot of people who are persecuted, where do you go? You go to Holland, you go to the Netherlands, where there's a relative amount of political and religious freedom. Although Locke's writings had little influence in Britain during his lifetime, they were not entirely overlooked. With the rise of American colonial resistance to British taxation in the 1700s, the second treatise of government that Locke had written gained a new readership. It was frequently cited in the political debates between colonial America and Britain, with the first American printing produced in Boston in 1773. Locke exercised a profound influence on political philosophy, especially modern liberalism, and he advocated for the separation of church and state. His arguments concerning liberty and the social contract later influenced the written works of Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and the other founders of the United States. One passage from the second treatise is reproduced verbatim in the Declaration of Independence in the reference to a long train of abuses. Such was Locke's influence that Thomas Jefferson wrote, Bacon, Locke, and Newton. I consider them as the three greatest men that have ever lived, without any exception, and as having laid the foundation of those superstructures which have been raised in the physical and moral sciences. Locke, writing his letters concerning toleration from 1689 to 1692, in the aftermath of the European wars of religion, formulated a classical uh, reasoning for religious tolerance in which three arguments are central. Earthly judges, the state in particular, and human beings generally, 
cannot dependably evaluate the truth claims of competing religious standpoints. Even if they could, enforcing a single true religion would not have the desired effect because belief cannot be compelled by violence. Now, uh, the bolded type there is my addition. Coercing religious uniformity would lead to more social disorder than allowing diversity. Locke was influenced by English Baptist theologians like John Smith and Thomas Helwes, who had published tracts demanding freedom of conscience in the early 17th century. Baptist theologian Roger Williams founded the colony of Rhode Island in 1636, where he combined a democratic constitution with unlimited religious freedom. And by the way, Rhode Island was the only colony of the, the original 13 that had true religious freedom. The others did not. Williams tracked the bloody tenet of persecution for cause of conscience, conscience published in 1644, was widely read in England and was a passionate plea for absolute religious freedom and the total separation of church and state. Locke's religious beliefs were primarily Christian. Having been born into and trained in a society that was Christian and his theology began as essentially Calvinist. But in the increasingly diverse intellectual climate in which he lived and worked, he shows elements of Socinianism, the idea that there is no existence of Christ before the incarnation, which is not an Orthodox Christian belief, and Arianism, also not a, an Orthodox Christian belief, that Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father and thus eternally subordinate to him. Locke also argued that the idea that all Adam's posterity are doomed to eternal infinite punishment for the transgression of Adam was little consistent with the justice or goodness of the great and infinite God, which leans toward Pelagianism. Pelagianism is the idea that there is no original sin, that man can do good works and earn divine grace by his good works. As for the Bible, Locke retained the doctrine of the verbal inspiration of the scriptures. He believed that the miracles were proof of the divine nature of the biblical message. And Locke was also convinced that the entire content of the Bible agreed with human reason and published The Reasonableness of Christianity in 1695. Although Locke was an advocate of tolerance, he urged the authorities not to tolerate atheism so we can tolerate other religions, but we cannot tolerate atheism because he thought that the denial of God's existence would undermine the social order and lead to chaos. So that excluded all atheistic varieties of philosophy and all attempts to deduce ethics and natural law from purely secular premises. In Locke's opinion, the cosmological argument was valid and proved God's existence. So in other words, we look at the cosmos, we see order, and we see an orderly cosmos that's functioning in, in reasonable ways that we can understand, and this essentially proves that God exists. And 
Locke also advocated for a sense of piety out of gratitude to God for giving reason to men. So after Locke, Diaz could no longer appeal to innate ideas as Herbert had done. So in other words, if you're born with a mind that's a blank slate and you have no innate ideas about God, you know, all you have essentially is reason. So you must be trained to think reasonably, look at the physical world, and that will lead you to an understanding that there is a God. But instead, deists were forced to turn to arguments based on experience and nature. So all, you, you know, all you're really left with, if, you, if, if human beings do not have these innate ideas, if they're not born with them, then they must be taught, they must be shaped, they must be molded. This is, you know, provides an early basis for the idea of behaviorism. Under the influence of Sir Isaac Newton, uh, they turned to the argument from design as the principal argument for the existence of God. John Toland's Christianity Not Mysterious, published in 1696, and the vehement response it provoked is the beginning of post-Lockean deism. So in other words, Toland is saying we need to get rid of all the mysterious stuff in Christianity, like the Trinity, which human beings can't fully comprehend. It's a mystery. We should get rid of that. Matthew Tyndall's Christianity as Old as the Creation, published in 1730, became very soon after its publication the focal point of the deist controversy. Because almost every argument, quotation, and issue raised for decades can be found here, the work is often termed the deist Bible. Enlightenment deism consisted basically of two philosophical assertions. A, reason, along with features of the natural world, is a valid source of religious knowledge. And B, revelation is not a valid source of religious knowledge. And I bolded that because that is, of course, contrary to Orthodox Christian theology. God reveals himself to mankind. Uh, one major way he has revealed himself is through the scriptures. Uh, they are inspired by the Holy Spirit, although written by men, and infallible. And yes, you can also see God in the creation. Uh, Christian would certainly not argue about that. Uh, but they would argue with a deist idea that, you know, anything in the Bible just really is not valid. Different deist philosophers expanded on these two assertions to create what some later termed the constructive and critical aspects of deism. The constructive assertions, assertions that deist writers felt were justified by appeals to reason and features of the natural world, or perhaps were intuitively obvious. God exists and created the universe. God gave humans the ability to reason. Again, these are presuppositions. They can't prove them. Like, you know, they can't test them in a laboratory and subject them to the scientific method and prove that those presuppositions are true. They simply assert them. Critical assertions. Assertions that followed from the denial of revelation as a valid source of religious knowledge were much more numerous. They included rejection of all books, including the Bible, that, are, that claim to contain divine revelation. 
rejection of the incomprehensible notion of the Trinity and other religious mysteries, rejection of reports of miracles, prophecies, etc. The most natural position for Dias was to reject all forms of supernaturalism, including the miracle stories in the Bible. The problem was that the rejection of miracles also seemed to entail the rejection of divine providence, or in other words, of God taking a hand in human affairs, something that many deists were inclined to uh, accept. Enlightenment philosophers under the influence of Newtonian science tended to view the universe as a vast machine or a clock, as many people like to describe this idea. It's a clock. And it was created and set in motion by a divine creator. And it just continues to run. And it runs according to natural law without any divine intervention. And this view naturally leads to determinism coupled with materialism. In other words, there is no spiritual or supernatural dimension to the cosmos. And the supernatural or spiritual realm simply does not exist. Now, of course, if you take this approach and you, then you look at the Bible, you would have to throw a lot of the Bible out. And uh, Thomas Jefferson actually did that. He wrote his own Bible. <laughs> or rather, Greg, was it a new, just a New Testament? I, I don't remember. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson's New Testament. I have a copy. It's very easy to think. It's still Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Jefferson's approach is we're just going to focus on the moral teachings of Jesus. He was a good moral teacher, and we're going to forget about all the miracles, casting out of demons, the resurrection. It, it, you know, it's all out the window. Now, a lot of these ideas continue to circulate, and people believe them today. A couple of years ago, someone said to me in a totally different context, not here in church, but in a whole other setting, uh, this person said to me, and this is a, a person who attended church regularly and was active uh, in their church, and said, I don't believe that God gets involved in human affairs. You know, there simply is no divine intervention. So in 2021, there are a lot of people who believe this. These ideas continue to circulate and are widely believed by many. Um, and they, they really do set the stage for later uh, movements within uh, both political philosophy and what would, be, would come to be known as psychology. You know, so the idea that human beings, you know, you can ignore this idea that human beings have a soul or a spirit or whatever. They're just like animals and they can be trained like animals and the whole idea of uh, behavior modification. Um, B.F. Skinner, you may have heard of Skinner. He was a prominent uh, researcher, scientist, and so forth, who uh, advocated these ideas about human beings. Human, the behavior of human beings can be shaped by how they are trained, just like an animal. Um, so these ideas are circulating throughout Europe. They are affecting, really, they're being spread through the whole world. Um, they're being brought into the new world. Some of these ideas, especially in the realm of political philosophy, the idea of what type of government should we have, 
Um, the idea that we should separate church and state, that people should not be persecuted for their religious ideas, even if they diverge from what the majority believe. You know, a lot of us, you know, might think, yeah, that's good. Um, so that different uh, people who practice different religions will follow different religions in peace without being persecuted. A lot of that was as a result of seeing the horrible religious wars that occurred in Europe really over centuries um, and the intense persecution of Protestants and also Jews. We really haven't talked about the Jews uh, in Europe. We did talk about them in Spain. They were ejected from Spain in the 1400s by the Roman Catholic Spanish who basically kicked out the Muslims and the Jews. Um, so all of this, you know, religious upheaval that people were seeing having taken place in Europe, people began to think we, you know, we must do something different. Um, certainly separation of church and state has its issues. I'm not going to say it doesn't because it does, um, but perhaps it's, um, you know, certainly better for people to follow what they believe uh, without being persecuted. Um, now, of course, that allows for perhaps harmful religious ideas to uh, hold sway in some groups, but uh, it's probably better than war and severe persecution. Well, that's all I have, and we're about out of time. Um, I guess, you know, if you have any questions, you can ask me, you know, during the picnic or what have you. I, we don't really have time for a whole lot of questions, but I'm glad to take any question. If you'd like uh, help researching um, these ideas, I can point you to some different sources. Um, again, I, you know, I don't have a PhD in any of this stuff. <laughs> uh, a lot of my sources come from the internet. Uh, but again, most of this is widely available, general knowledge. Um, you know, we all know there was an English Civil War. There was a guy named Martin Luther. These are all, <laughs> you know, essentially in the public domain. Um, but if, if you are interested in, in uh, studying some of these things, I encourage you to do that on your own, or I can help you find sources.